On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be chatting about the Christmas time tradition of Handel's Messiah. All these years later, people still love it. Why is that? Why is there still demand for this particular piece of music? Then we'll be talking about sports teams tanking, which is a huge problem now. How do you fix that? And also, we will tell the story of a bride's rather unusual demands that I'm guessing may weigh rather heavily upon you. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Alex Can and the Bach Elgar Choir will be, perfor- be performing the concert this Saturday at Melrose United right here in Hamilton. Alex Can joins me now. Sir, how are you today? I'm very well, Scott. Thank you for having me. Excellent. I'm thrilled to have you on. Uh, Alex is, as I say, the artistic director of the Bach Elgar Choir. And I am assuming when you are the artistic director, the conductor, the whatever title you want to put in front of a group like that, uh, when it comes to around Christmas time, when December rolls around, there is a, almost an expectation or an obligation you're going to do this, right? Well, we do it every year, but most choirs don't. Uh, it, it requires um, it requires uh, a tradition, you know. You need to uh, you need to get at it every year, or, or it's difficult. It's a very difficult piece of music. Do... Do musicians like that? So when you have that tradition, do the do the choir members, do they like the predictability that it's going to be something that is expected to be done each year? Oh, yes, I think so. Yes, definitely. I mean, we all love doing it. Because we do it every year, it's very familiar. So you, you open the score again, and it's just, it's a joy to do it. So we look forward to it every year. Really, honestly, we do. We love it. The reason I ask that is because I would think there would be some pieces. I'm sure there are bands, for example, rock bands, who have a a hit song that they wrote in 1978, and they are so tired of playing that song in every single concert. The predictability or the familiarity doesn't make this one tiring for you? Well, actually, I used to play squash with a guy from the Bare Naked Ladies, and used to talk about uh, if I had a million (laughs) dollars in exactly those terms. Um, but, uh, so yeah, I mean, sure that, that, that is a phenomenon in music that uh, it honestly is not for this and nor, nor is it, I think for the audience people, this is an annual tradition for people. It's an amazing piece. It's a big piece and it's a complex piece and it's fascinating and it's utterly wonderful. So people, people, people who are, who want it every year, they get it every year. How about for someone like you, because you're in charge of this whole thing, and there is only so much personal touch, personal stamp that a conductor can put on a piece as familiar as this, isn't there? Uh, yeah, well, that's true. I mean, I think um, I always say to the choir that, okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you to do this, 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 and this, and then for the performance, I want you to forget all that and just do it how you do it anyway. <laughs> um, but years ago... When I started with Bach Elgar, I had a chance to to work Messiah for for a good long period, so um, that sort of laid laid the the groundwork for what for what I like in a Messiah. Yeah, because you can't really, I say, you can't throw in a rap part part way through or change it up too much. I mean, when people show up, they have something in mind that they want to hear, and if you tinker too much, then even though it may be really creative and really amazing in their minds, you screwed it up. Well. Uh, you're giving me ideas, Scott. You have to be careful. Um, well, you can do the alternative version the next day. Yeah, well... Come for sure. traditional, or the next day, come for alternative. I actually would come well, to the alternative just to see what you could do. Well, indeed, there are <laughs> alternative versions. Are there? Uh, oh, yes. There's... Oh, yes. I mean, there's Messiah every which way. But, I mean, the thing is, we're a professional... Uh, we're, we're an organization which hires professional musicians and top-notch soloists. So, and, and when you're performing a piece of music that is so familiar to so many people... 
it it better be good. I mean, it, it really better be good. Because they know what the baseline is, right? They've heard very good Messiah, even not, if not live. They've heard it recorded. They know what good sounds like. Definitely they do. Yeah, definitely they do. What is it then about this? Because it is very familiar. People have all heard it a million times. What is it about this that seems to resonate so deeply with people? Well, I mean, for me, to summarize it quickly, I mean, it's not, it, it's wonderful music. It's a deep and complex music, but it's, um, it's, it's a profound psychological journey. It's, it's a story from before the birth of Christ, through the birth of Christ and the passion of Christ, and then Christ's ascension, and then the, the, um, the um, significance, the theological significance of that. Uh, in other words, the changed heaven and earth that is a result and the implications for people. So it's a huge story. And uh, it, it is a universal story. I mean, many people say this. And after having just said that, you might think, well, that's a very Christian story. That's something that Christians can relate to. Well, it's most definitely something which everyone can relate to because of the way that it's constructed and because of Handel's particular insight. Handel was, um, he crossed barriers. In the 18th century, it was rare for somebody to have one foot in the Catholic Church, as he did, and one foot in Protestant churches, um, and a third foot in the Anglican Church in in, in England later in life. So, uh, which is of course Protestant, <laughs> but is very different from um, European Protestants. So he had uh, he had a, he mixed, and 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 that experience informs this work, and it's why the story is not um, is so approachable for so many people. It's a universal psychological journey. You just mentioned some of the storyline behind it, but am I correct? I, I vaguely remember hearing this at one point. This was not written as a Christmas piece. It's become that, but this was this not written originally as an Easter piece? Yeah, and indeed, it, I mean, it, it remains that way in other places, but in Canada, it's very firmly associated with Christmas, and I think, and I think that makes sense because the music around the Christmas... Um, uh, portion of the the, the the Christmas music here is is so fantastic. This is a this is a very interesting piece. How it was written, I understand. I did a little poking around today, and I don't know a whole lot, but I understand this was written exceedingly quickly. Actually, considering how it has survived and how it has been maintained as a classic, something like twenty four days that Handel was able to write this in. Yeah, that's right. It's 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 really incredible, and and that's I think largely substantiated by the historical record. Uh, he did do that for all of his major oratorios, or, or many of them. He wrote them in that kind of time frame. So it wasn't just this one. He, uh, he, he was unbelievably fast. A man who liked to work under pressure, clearly. He would, he would take a sojourn in the country to do it, or at least he did for this, and he did for other things. Uh, he'd take you know, he'd, a month off, as it were, in the summer, and he'd just sequester himself and, and, and write. Um... Yeah, that's what he liked to do. So, <laughs> now this is at the at, at the most mature phase of his compositional career. I mean, there's no question that he'd been writing, uh, he'd written many operas before and, and many many other works. So uh, it's not like um, years and years and years of refined compositional technique didn't go into that extraordinary feat. But no matter how you look at it, it's amazing. Still, to come home from the cottage and have this one in your briefcase is pretty good. That that's it exactly. That was his. That was what he did. Now, you mentioned that it's in how it was done is similar, but 
could someone who is not, who doesn't have your ear and your background in music, is it similar enough to other Handel pieces that everyone who listens to it, who's even a little familiar would say, even if I didn't know this was his, I would know it was his? Interesting question. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think probably not necessarily because it, it um, in many ways, this piece is, is uh, one of the break, breakwaters of music. It's, it's, it's a change. It's a new thing. It, it was, it was uh, 1742, and it, you know, it was performed for the first time then, and, and it's been performed ever since. And, and you can't really say that about any other piece. Um, so it started the, the modern audience in, in many respects that, that it started, it was first performances in Dublin, but the first extended audience was in London and it didn't take long for it to spread to other places. And, it, and it's really literally gone ever since. But I understand, and again, maybe a, a, a misstory or a, a, an urban legend, but my understanding was though, when it was originally played, the reception was cool. It was not wildly received as one of the great pieces of all time. Well, or is that I an mean, urban uh, legend? Uh, pretty caught on pretty quickly. I mean, I it took a couple of years, but um, you know, the the initial uh, performance was in Dublin, sort of out of the way, kind of not unlike the way that um, sometimes Broadway shows would start in Toronto. They used to do that, uh, or in other out of the way places. Uh, Toronto used to be a destination for that. Um, this was sort of like that, sort of a test. And so, if you consider that was a sort of small scale, and it did take a little while before he found his London audience. But he did in, in just a couple of years, and, and it, was, it was a big deal. There are various versions also of the story of how it came to be that people traditionally stood up during the Hallelujah Chorus. One of them, probably the most famous, I think, is that the king stood at one time or was in the first performance. What, what is the version of the story? I mean, you wouldn't know for sure. What's the version of the story you like to believe is the genesis of that standing tradition? Oh, I believe that. I mean, I, I mean, I think it's a wonderful story. The king being so, so excited in an inner turmoil of emotion, he stood. And uh, this is a way of showing his, um, his pleasure, I suppose, or letting, letting go of his hallelujah. So everybody else stood, too. I think it's lovely. I, it's not like, you know, not everybody does that. And uh, really? when you go outside of the Anglo world, even in Quebec, they don't necessarily do that. Um, so when you step one step out of the Anglo world, that tradition, you can find yourself standing alone in, a, in an audience of quizzical, uh, you know, a quizzical audience. So but here, to, yeah. here, when you perform it this weekend, would it be expected that everybody's going to stand up? Oh, they always do. And do you think that everybody there knows to stand up or the younger people maybe who haven't been before don't know it, they're seeing everyone. So they just follow along and then say, why are we standing up? Yeah, our, our Messiah audience is notably, um, I sort of call it the gateway piece for classical music, because our audience is noticeably younger uh, than our average audience. And, you know, we get, we get um, people who are sort of first-timers for classical music generally, which is terrific. So, yeah, I'm sure there's lots of people in the audience who are thinking, what? what? What's time to go? Yeah, that's, time that's to go. Great. Yeah, we're done. I didn't know, they're still playing the music. Must be time yeah. to leave, though. Uh, this is a, it is a beautiful piece. It is beautifully done. You are performing it this Saturday at Melrose United Church, which is right here in Hamilton. Uh, are tickets still available? I believe a few. It, it's, it's selling very well. And if somebody was interested and they wanted to get tickets ahead of time, where would they do that? Do you know? Bachelgar.com. B-A-C-H-E-L-G-A-R. 
com. Fantastic stuff, Alex. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this today. Thank you. A real pleasure, Scott. Thank you. That is uh, Alex Kahn, who is the artistic director of the Bach Elgar. I, I got to say it like him now, the Bach Elgar Choir. See, uh, those of us who are not in the music world, we say Bach, but it's Bach Elgar Choir. Uh, and you can, I don't know how you spell that when you go online, but normally it's B-A-C-H-E-L-G-A-R choir.com so you can get those tickets uh, Melrose United Church this Saturday also as I say though Boris brought also if you can't get tickets for that Sunday uh, sorry Monday at St. Patrick's Church and Tuesday in Waterdown at St. Thomas the Apostle Church lots of opportunities if you are interested you're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML let me bring in our good friend, Bubba O'Neill, who he's not going to give the answer away, but I would bet money he knows the answer to this quiz question. Can I have a Coke with no ice? Yeah, how, and so don't tell us what it'll be, but yeah, if you order that Coke with no ice and at room temperature, there's a word for what you would tell the bartender. Really? And I know you know, yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll know it. I'm surprised you don't know it. Right Usually you don't say it with a Coke though. It's always with an alcoholic beverage that you would use this phrase. See, like, I, I, I have a, a problem. I have to admit that I love ice. Well, see, then you've never used this word, so you probably may not know it. But <laughs> I was going to say, when you said I have a problem, I thought, oh boy, what is this show about to turn into? <laughs> this is an AA meeting on the air. No, Bubba doesn't have that kind of problem. Not that kind of problem. Hey, thanks for doing this today. Glad you're along. Uh, let me ask you this question, because there is a new thing going on in professional sports, and I am beginning to get very fatigued by it, and that is teams that clearly have no at intent to win. They don't think they can win. And so they just strip down to the bones and tank to lose intentionally to get better draft picks or to help them out in some way, or just to save money. We, we've, we saw Houston, the Houston Astros do this a few years ago and it worked to great effect with them because they were able to in years with good draft picks to turn around and win a world series. But by the last night we saw the Arizona Diamondbacks trade Paul Goldschmidt, one of the top hitters in baseball, and we've seen the Seattle Mariners give away, trade away all their star players. This is starting to drive me nuts that teams are now going into years saying, we're not even going to try to win anymore. Well, I mean, I, I think, first of all, I think tanking's been going on for forever, for longer than we'd like to admit. Yeah, just more obvious I, now. It's become more obvious now because, I mean, you have players that are making such, you know, incredible amounts of money compared to what, you know, we've seen just even 10, 10 years ago. So I think it becomes more obvious, though. But I guess, as they would say, the old saying goes, if you're running a team, the, you know, the uh, definition of insanity is just doing, sending the same guys out of there, you know, you know if you're, you say you're spending $100 million on your roster, just sending these guys out over and over again, and you're not getting any results. You Sometimes you got to pack them up and, you know, give them to other teams. That I see that part I get. I understand about trading it away. The problem is what you're often getting back. What these what these teams are often getting back is not very much, and it's it's a draft pick way down the road, or or a, a player. It's essentially a salary dump. And if you're going to do that, and it drives me nuts, but if you're going to do that, it seems to me the absolute bare essential thing that should come along with that is for you to turn around to your fans and say, oh, by the way, ticket prices are slashed by 50% this year. If we're not <laughs> going to compete, that's never gonna happen. Come on. if we're not going to even make an effort to compete, we're not going to charge you competing prices. 
Well, you got to put money in the bank, Scott. I mean, well, come on. I mean, and first of all, your attendance is going to suffer regardless, right? If your team, if there's a word out there that your team's rebuilding or going to tank, if we're going to say that, say those words. I mean, I think everyone knows that you know your attendance is going to suffer somewhat. We're going to see that with the Blue Jays this year, and I know there's some excitement with guys like Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and you know some some other the young prospects that may get called up and. Um, but I, we're going to see a tremendous decrease in attendance from what this team has had over the last three to four years. Uh, and I just think that's just part of the game. You, you can only have a run. There are only a couple of teams out there, and we're looking at one right now, say the Detroit Red Wings right now, uh, who are playing the Maple Leafs. They had an incredible run of nearly 15 years of always making the playoffs and being a contender. But eventually, as we're seeing right now, you hit the bottom of the barrel, so you got to rebuild. And you're right; it does seem like a salary dump, but you you are getting draft picks to rebuild your franchise. Yeah, I, look, if you're getting parts back that are going to rebuild the franchise, I can tolerate that. And even if you're going to call it a tank at that point, I can say I can live with that. If you're getting parts that are going to help you, but we're also seeing teams, Bubba, that are just dumping money and literally giving the guys away because they're expensive. The, the Goldschmidt thing is a perfect example. They got some, you know, inconsequential pieces back apparently, but this was... Uh, there's the- one good pitcher in that, in that deal. They, there's a pitcher that actually, I think he went 11 and 17 or something like that this year. He was, he was a good pitcher, but you're right though. I mean, it, it, it's a serviceable pitcher, a serviceable pitcher, two draft picks, and actually they, what I did see, there's a conditional competitive balance draft pick in the second round that was given to them just to equal it out. Maple Leaf fans probably are listening to this saying, wait a second, don't be too critical about tanking because tanking has worked out pretty well for the Leafs. Well, you know, and just to hold you there, there, Scott, I mean, here's, here's exactly why it does work and why I think fans sometimes just have to suck it up a little bit. The Maple Leafs are the perfect example of tanking because they went down to the bottom of the barrel uh, finished last in the National Hockey League and were able to rebuild their franchise around Austin Matthews by finishing last in the league. Now, previous to that, people would tell you this, with the exception of one, two, three, three runs that I can think of to the uh, the Final Four in the National Hockey League, this team was locked in being in middle ground, in some kind of parity, if you want to say. like They were just in the middle uh, because they didn't tank. They would just continue to sort of sell players and then sort of get players of equal value back. But it never resulted to anything but just being mediocre. Is there a difference, though, between a tank and a teardown? Somehow the two don't seem to be synonymous with me, and I'm not just talking about the Leafs. It seems to me there's a way that you can rebuild a team by trading away some parts for good other parts without ruining the credibility, ruining the whatever it is by trying to lose. I think there's, I think those are two separate things. But Scott, teams, teams that you're going to be trading with only want your good players. That's the only Oh, no, 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 I get that. But if you're getting good parts back, good young parts or good young prospects right. back, and you're saying, yeah, we're actually trying to win, right. but we just don't have the pieces and we're working towards something. That's one thing. I've seen teams that you, Baltimore Orioles last year, looked like there was never any intent to actually win any games. Every time they won, it looked like it was, oh, crap, we won a game. Shoot. <laughs> well, that's going to hurt our chances at the first overall pick. There's a difference in my mind between rebuilding and trying to lose. 
Yeah, I mean, again, that that's it's debatable. I mean, and you're right. Some teams are more obvious about it. Um, and you're right. I mean, you're looking at the Baltimore Orioles as a great example because uh, maybe one, two, three years ago they were in the playoffs against with the Blue Jays, were yep. they not? Yep, that was the game that Edwin Encarnacion hit the walk-off home run. Yes, and the game that uh, their fine closer never appeared. That's because right. Because of, of their dumb, dumb manager. Right? <laughs> the, most, the smartest man in the world. He was, yes. yes. <laughs> Buck, uh, Buck Showalter always is the smartest man in the room. You're right about that. Um, and you're right. How did that team go, hit, hit the skids so, you know, so quickly. But again, that's another team that had a lot of veteran players um, that took a run, got a lot of veteran players, didn't get as far as the Blue Jays did, and eventually you just get old. Is there any way to force teams... See, I've got one idea, and it's not an original idea. I heard this from someone else, and that is I mean, teams are rewarded for finishing last because they get better draft picks and that's the way it should be you've got to be able to restock in general but to prevent them from tanking any team that misses the playoffs is going to be in the draft they have a tournament of their own that forces you to have to play well and win some games that's the oh and i don't know if it would work but it's the only thing i've heard of so far that would take the tanking out of the, well, no, out of the sport. you don't have to be that drastic all you got to do is what the national hockey league does right and that is you're, as it stands right now in many other leagues, you finish last, you get the number one draft pick, right? If that does not work so in the National Hockey League. You go into the, the, uh, the lotto balls uh, where that last place team does have a higher percentage, but not by much. Perfect example. What did the Buffalo Sabres do three years ago? Tanked. And, what happened, and, how, and how did they benefit? Well, they, they got they Jack got, Eichel, but they didn't get they the guy got, they wanted. Exactly, right? They didn't get Connor McDavid. They got Jack Eichel. Jack Eichel, great player. Not maybe not a generational player. So there's an example of a team that was in a clear tank mode, and it didn't benefit. So to me, maybe teams need to go to uh, some type of rules or some type of draft changing or changing or adjusting of the rules where you don't automatically get that first overall draft pick. So maybe that will you know, change the minds of many people in terms of how they would, you know, if you want to say tank. All right, let me change topics really quickly for the couple minutes or a few minutes that we have left here. There is a big fight, a big fight card, a UFC fight in Toronto this weekend. And I don't think most people even know about that. And there was a time, how long ago, Bubba? Five years, seven years ago when the UFC coming to this area was the biggest thing on the sports calendar. They sold out Rogers Center. fifty Over 50,000 people. And now... People don't even know that it is going on here. Is this this area changing its taste in sports, or is this evidence that this sport itself is sputtering a little bit? I think this is just the nature of what we're seeing in UFC, period. Um, at the time, uh, you and I know you were at that card, that original first card with George St. Pierre, were you not? Yes, I was. I mean, uh, 50,000 people. I went to the next one, which had John Bones Jones at uh, at then Air Canada Center, and it was electric. I, 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 mean, I have been to a few sporting events that have felt that kind of tension and that kind of crowd noise. I'd never heard that building be so loud, quite honestly. Um, but I think at the time it was the new thing. It was what, you know, hey, oh my goodness, after so many cards of not being in Canada, 
So I think what's happened now is it's just sort of settled down into the rest of the medium with all the other sports that options that we have right now. I think for the people that follow UFC, there's excitement. Uh, what I will say to add to that, it reminds me a lot of the WWE or WWF or whatever it's called, is that it's, it's cyclical. It will always continue. There will always be the hardcore fans, but every once in a while, maybe once every two years, sometimes once every five years, comes a character in the sport or an individual or a matchup that becomes so incredibly interesting that the sport raises right up in terms of interest. And I think that's where UFC is right now. I think it's just settled right into just a rest of the sports like everything else. Like yeah, that's what they're missing right now, I think, in a large way, is that character. I mean, you mentioned John Jones, who has had his problems outside the cage. George St. Pierre is gone. Brock Lesnar is out. Uh, Ronda Rousey is now wrestling, not doing that. I mean, you go down the list of the guys, but Anderson look, Silva. Look she's done for wrestling. Well, has she? I, I don't follow WWE. I don't really follow wrestling at I all. Don't, I don't that much, Scott, either. But I will say I've read enough that, that, that the cards are up, the paper. Look what they've done. Because of her success, the WWE had its first ever all-women's card. No male, no males on the fight card. Pay-per-view at that. And the pay-per-view buys were apparently well above expectation. Yeah, I, I just I don't see the care I don't see the people I don't see the really intriguing people right now in the UFC and this that is a sport when you have any, well it's not just this when you have any individual sport you have to have interesting people that Absolutely. you want to watch tennis golf whatever and look I mean look at golf with Tiger Woods when Tiger's out ratings drop down tennis I mean who's the person in tennis right now that you say I've got to see that person because I really care about that person some people might the diehards might but Could be Shapovalov? For the average fan? Maybe. I, I, I maybe. Think, I think I think he I think he could be that guy. It could be. He but could it's be. Coming. I think it's coming though. But right now, tennis has been in a funk because there's been ever since the seventies with the Borg McEnroe Connors, Nastasi, whatever era where you knew all these guys, they all had a personality. You went into the, a time, a long time, especially in men's tennis, when it was a bunch of automatons. Fantastic players, unbelievable players with absolutely no personality. And, and that's why I think where the UFC is right now. Most of their guys are just, you could, you could, well, I don't want to well, say you can knock the head only, off them. That they want to, you could you could replace the face, and you would not necessarily know the differences for sure. And only the hardcores know them, right? But I'm t- but I believe that that will happen, and I believe the same thing happens with boxing. Every once in a while, comes along a, a character or someone that is either destroying people that you have, like Tyson. Right? Tyson didn't have a personality when he first came up, but we all know, did you hear about this guy that is knocking out guys in nine seconds? Yeah. Right? Like it, it just it, it became this interest that we all just got atta- attached to. And as time went on, we got to learn a little bit more about Mike and, and you know, that, you know, oh my God, he's like a killer, but he's so soft-spoken. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, and it was just he's got this squeaky little voice. <laughs> Don't say that to him, though. Right? No. You know, and like, and, and became, he became, in many ways, a cultural icon. You know, for some some of the right reasons and some for the very wrong reasons, right? But I believe that happens, and I think that's what's missing in the UFC. But I do believe it comes. I think it comes and it goes. All right, last thing before we let you go. The Leafs are playing right now, losing to the Detroit Red Wings 2-1 to one, or halfway through the first period. Uh, as we stand right now in the NHL, Toronto is where a lot of people thought they would be right at the top. They're second in the NHL behind Tampa. 
Cal- Winnipeg is sixth, which I think is where people in that top echelon where most people thought the Jets were going to be. Calgary is shocking a lot of people. They're seventh. And then you got to go down to 15th. Just in the playoff picture is Montreal. And then Edmonton is after that. And who else we got? Ottawa, Vancouver. Vancouver has just fallen off the table. Which, which Canadian team, if any, has surprised you at this point? You know, we all knew Winnipeg was going to be really, really good. And you're right. We knew Toronto was going to make that next step. Uh, I think Calgary, I think the, the big surprise to me, and for the wrong reasons, is the Edmonton Oilers. Again. Right? Like, but, I mean, this is really shocking, Scott. I mean, you've got now Connor McDavid, who's not a kid anymore. You're playing a guy like Dreisaitl, $9 million a year. You've got Cam Talbot that right now, for whatever reason, can't stop a puck. And and uh, Richard Nurse, who's, you know, who's, who's just sort of learning the game and, and, and improving. Dar- Darnell. Richard wishes, Darnell, he, sorry, Richard wishes he was playing. <laughs> sorry, he should be catching football. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, Darnell Nurse, who's, you know, one of the only really good defensive prospects they have right now. Uh, and, and somehow, some way, Ken Hitchcock is back in the game. <laughs> you put, yeah, and what? they're winning under him. They're winning well, under him. He, because he's a fixer. He's a fixer-upper. Like, is he not been forever? He comes in there. He'll never last more than two or three years because you get fed up of the message. But he guy, that guy goes in there and corrects things, and he makes people accountable for their play. And I think you'll see the, that team improves. But uh, even still, with him there, that team has been the big surprise to me because I – we're talking about a team that was what uh, a couple a couple of goals away from maybe going to the the Western Conference final two mm-hmm. years ago. What's really interesting about this? Uh, we gotta let you go. What's really interesting is that probably two weeks ago, three well, two and a half, three weeks ago, Vancouver was looking pretty good, way better than they are now. Ottawa was looking respectable, way better than they are now, and Montreal was right near the top, and they're now just clinging into that playoff picture, but who knows for how long that will be um, based on that team. And Carey Price, it'll be as long as Carey Price carries them into that playoff picture, quite honestly. it's um, We may have a playoffs with three Canadian teams. We seem to go, this will be odd though, because we seem to have either all of them in or none of them in over recent <laughs> years. We don't usually have just a few of them in. Yeah, I, I, but I do believe that again a cyclical kind of thing. Uh, you talk about Montreal, Vancouver. I mean, who got off to great starts? But I think everyone knew there was a bit of fool's gold in that, right? Uh, those are teams that uh, that are outward rebuilding. Ottawa as well, too. I mean, you lose like you know, as many players as they have. But I will say this: the good thing about Ottawa and Montreal, who are playing tonight, Vancouver as well, too, has got this Elias Pettersson, who's a real looks like a real star. Um, Not you know, tanking. They, None yeah. of them are tanking. They're, 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 they're playing hard, right? None I, of them are tanking. Well, Ottawa, we got to let you go. Ottawa can't tank this year because they traded away their first round draft pick. And if they were to get the first overall pick, that's that's a horror show because they would lose that to Colorado then, and oh my goodness, no, that would that, be... That, that, that can't happen. They can't do that, but no, none of them, and I applaud them for that. Back to where we started. None of those teams look like they're tanking. They are all trying. What will happen halfway through the year? Who knows? But right now, they're all playing hard, and good for them. Bubba O'Neill, you can catch him tonight on CHCH. He's doing the sports. He's doing some news. He'll be doing the weather. I believe he's doing now Bubba's fashion corner. I'm not really sure what else he does. <laughs> Always appreciate you coming on. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me, bud. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There's an interesting story about an American woman who she and her fiance are getting married in 2019 in Hawaii. Late in 2019. So you've got over a year. 
And she has now sent a, in addition to the invitations to people who are going to be coming to Hawaii for her wedding, she has sent a text outlining what the expectations are, not of the people in her wedding party, but of all people who will be attending said wedding, all the people. And apparently she's got a big flock of folks who are flying out there for this wedding. What I am not sure about is how well this text that she sent is going to be received with her demands for the audience. She has this picture in her mind clearly of how she wants the pictures and everything to look. So she has sent a text to everybody who's ready for Hawaii 2019 in anticipation of the wedding. And believe me, I know it's still a long way away, but I would like to announce the dress code and on we go into the dress code. (laughs) Okay. Without further ado, women... Brackets, 100 to 160 pounds. Oh, no. She has got her dress code done by weight for the visual impact that it will make. Women, 100 to 160 pounds, should wear a green velvet sweater, orange suede pants, and Louboutin heels with the red-heeled shoes and a Burberry scarf. So if if you're a modestly, is that the right word? Modestly sized woman, 100 to 160 pounds, an average, a a, a probably North American average size for most women, I would think. That's what you're going to wear. Men, 100 to 200 pounds, a purple fuzzy jacket, a soda hat, all white trainers, and bring plain glow sticks. All right. Now, so far, while the dress code, while the outfits may sound garish and horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody's probably they may people may be thinking that she's out of her mind, but okay. It sounds like that's not good for the weather in Hawaii. Not so much. But now is where it gets curious and a little awkward. Because now women 160 pounds plus. So basically, if you are in the more corpulent crowd. You are to wear all black sweater and pants and black heels. Really, don't stand out. <laughs> so anybody getting... Oh, and men, 200 pounds plus, all camouflage with black sneakers. What? I'm telling you, she was drinking when she wrote this, I think. Nonetheless, anyone who shows up in all black sweater and pants, if you're a woman, is announcing to the crowd that I am a... Is it not... I mean, after... Now, maybe the times have changed. Maybe you're allowed to ask a woman her age these days. But once upon a time, that was a severe no-no. But still on the list of things you don't ask women is, hey, how much are you weighing these days? How's the scale going? Are you at 190 yet? Have you pushed 300? I mean, you would never, you would never ask a guy this. And maybe this is, maybe, maybe women are allowed to be asked their weight now because we live in a completely non-sexist, non discriminatory society, but I would never go up to a woman ever. I'm sorry if this is sexist. I think it's just polite. I would never go up to a woman and go, Hey, you look like you're at least 280 now. How you doing? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. You said also, guys, would you go up to Mike Fortune and ask him what? No, the I wouldn't go up to anybody. Morning? I wouldn't go up to anybody, <laughs> no. but especially women. And again, I'm sorry if that's sexist. It just that's there is a politeness factor as well in this thing. You would never do it anyway. Any woman who shows up wearing all black, you know, ah, 160 plus. 
I don't know if she's going to have a scale there to check. Oh, I think probably, yeah. That that is that is the most egregious part of the wedding attire, but it gets it gets well maybe not worse. It goes on though. Hit me with it. Additionally, we will require you wear formal attire after the dancing has ended. Please bring a change of clothing because the venue is extremely upscale, not based on the earlier attires. Mm. Uh, we want you looking your absolute best. If you look like trash, so will we. We want you to invest in an outfit valued at at least $1,000. <laughs> this includes jewelry, accessories, makeup, and hair. Remember, ladies and gents, this wedding is 24K themed for a reason. You have a year to get working. No excuses. If I got a wedding invitation like that, first of all, telling me that I'm dressing based on my weight and then telling me buy another outfit that's at least a thousand bucks because you're a reflection of us. I can tell you what would be written back on that invitation when it was sent back and it wouldn't be RSVP. And I can't say it on the air. (laughs) I got my finger over the sensor button, Scott. (laughs) But I, it might contain special instructions on where they could place their RSVP card. <laughs> the Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.